Chapter Eleven of the Black Bag. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. The Black Bag by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter Eleven. Off the Nore. Kirkwood's anger cooled apace. At worst, it had been a flare of passion, incandescent. It was seldom more. His brain clearing, the temperature of his judgment quickly regained its mean, and he saw his chances without distortion, weighed them without exaggeration. Leaning against the combing, feet braced upon the slippery and treacherous deck, he clung to tiller and mainsheet and peered ahead with anxious eyes, a pucker of daring graven deep between his brows. A mile to westward, three or more ahead, he could see the brigantine standing close in under the Essex shore. At times she was invisible. Again he could catch merely the glint of her canvas, white against the dark loom of the littoral, toned by a mist of flying spindrift. He strained his eyes, watching for the chance which would take place in the rake of her masts and sails, when she should come about. For the longer that maneuver was deferred, the better was his chance of attaining his object. It was a forlorn hope, but in time the brigantine, to escape Maplin Sands, would be forced to tack and stand out past the lightship, the wind off her port bows. Then their courses would intersect. It remained to be demonstrated whether the catboat was speedy enough to arrive at the point of contact in advance of, or simultaneously with, the larger vessel. Every minute that the putative Alethea put off coming about brought the catboat nearer that goal. But Kirkwood could do no more than hope and try to trust in the fisherman's implied admission that it could be done. It was all in the boat and the way she handled. He watched her anxiously, quick to approve her merits as she displayed them. He had sailed small craft before, frail centerboard catboats, handy and swift, built to serve in summer winds and protected waters, never such as one as this. Yet he liked her. Deep-bosomed she was, with no centerboard, dependent on her draft and heavy keel to hold her on the wind, stanch and seaworthy sheathed with stout plank and ribbed with seasoned timber designed to keep afloat in the wickedest weather brewed by the foul-tempered german ocean with all her lines were fine and clean for all her beam she was calculated to nose narrowly into the wind and make a pretty pace as well a good boat he had the grace to give the credit to his luck her disposition was more fully disclosed as they drew away from the beach in shore, with shoaling water, the waves had been choppy and spiteful, but lacking force of weight. Farther out, as the bottom fell away, the rollers became more uniform and powerful. Heavy sweeping seas met the catboat. From their hollows, looming mountainous to the man in the tiny cockpit, who was nevertheless aware that to a steamer they would be negligible. His boat breasted them gallantly, toiling sturdily up the steep acclivities, poising breathlessly on foam-crested summits for dizzy instants, then plunging headlong down the deep green swales, and left a boiling wake behind her, urging her onward 
hugging the wind in her wisp of blood-red sail and boring into it, pulling at the tiller with the metal of a racehorse slugging at the bit. Offshore, too, the wind stormed with added strength, or possibly had freshened. For minutes on end the leeward gunwales would run green, and now and again the screaming, pelting squalls that scoured the estuary would heel her over until the water cascaded in over the lee combing, and the rudder, lifted clear, would hang idle until, smitten by some racing billow, the tiller would be all but torn from Kirkwood's hands. Again and again this happened, and those were times of trembling. But always the catboat righted, shaking the clinging waters from her and swinging her stem into the wind again, and there would follow an abbreviated breathing spell, during which Kirkwood was at liberty to dash the salt spray from his eyes and search the wind-harried waste for the brigantine. Sometimes he found her, sometimes not. Long after he had expected her to, she went about, and they began to close in upon each other. He could see that even with shortened canvas she was staggering drunkenly under the fierce impacts of the wind. For himself it was nip and tuck, now, and no man in his normal sense would have risked a sixpence on the boat's chance to live until she crossed the brigandine's bows. Time out of reckoning, he was forced to kneel in the swimming cockpit, steering with one hand, using the bailing dish with the other, and keeping his eyes religiously turned to the bellying patch of sail. It was heartbreaking toil. He began reluctantly to concede that it could not last much longer. And if he missed the brigantine, he would be lost. Mortal strength was not enough to stand the unending strain upon every bone, muscle, and sinew required to keep the boat upon her course though for a time it might cope with and solve the problems presented by each new malignant billow and each furious howling squall, the end inevitably must be failure. To struggle on would be but to postpone the certain end, save and accept the possibility of his gaining the brigantine within the period of time strictly and briefly limited by his powers of endurance. Long since he had become numb with cold from incessant drenchings of icy spray that piled in over the windward counter, keeping the bottom ankle deep regardless of his laborious but intermittent efforts with the bailing dish, and the two, brigantine and cockle-shell, were drawing together with appalling deliberation. A dozen times he was on the point of surrender, as often plucked up hope, as the minutes wore on and he kept above water, he began to believe that if he could stick it out, his judgment and seamanship would be justified, though human ingenuity backed by generosity could by no means contrive adequate excuse for his foolhardiness. But that was aside, something irreparable. Wan and grim, he fought it out. But that his voice stuck in his parched throat, he could have shouted in his elation when, eventually, he gained the point of intersection an eighth of a mile ahead of the brigantine and got sight of her windward freeboard as, most slowly, the catboat forged across her course. For all that, the moment of his actual triumph was not yet. He had still to carry off successfully a scheme that for sheer audacity of conception and contempt for danger transcended all that had gone before. Holding the catboat on for a time, he brought her about handsomely a little way beyond the brigantine's course, and hung in the eye of the wind, the leech flapping and tightening with reports like rifle-shots, 
and the water sloshing about his calves, bailing dish now altogether out of mind, while he watched the oncoming vessel, his eyes glistening with anticipation. She was footing it smartly, the brigantine, lying down to it and snoring into the wind. Beneath her stem waves broke in snow-white showers, whiter than the canvas of her bulging jib broke, and, gnashing their teeth in impotent fury, swirled and eddied down her sleek, dark flanks. Bobbing, curtsying, she plunged onward, shortening the interval with mighty, leaping bounds. On her bows, with each instant, the golden letters of her name grew larger and more legible, until, Alethea, he could read it plain beyond dispute. Joy welled in his heart. He forgot all that he had undergone in the prospect of what he proposed still to do in the name of the only woman the world held for him. Unquestioning, he had come thus far in her service. Unquestioning, by her side, he was prepared to go still farther, though all humanity should single her out with accusing fingers. They were watching him aboard the brigantine. He could see a line of heads above her windward rail. Perhaps she was of their number. He waved an audacious hand. Someone replied, a great shout shattering itself unintelligibly against the gale. He neither understood nor attempted to reply. His every faculty was concentrated on the supreme moment now at hand. Calculating the instant to a nicety, he paid off the sheet and pulled up the tiller. The catboat pivoted on her heel. With a crack, her sail flapped full and rigid. Then, with the untempered might of the wind behind her, she shot like an arrow under the brigantine's bows, so close that the bowsprit of the latter first threatened to impale the sail, next the bows plunging, crashing down a bare two feet behind the catboat's stern. Working in a frenzy of haste, Kirkwood jammed the tiller hard a lee bringing the cat about, and, trimming the main-sheet as best he might, found himself racing under the brigantine's leeward quarter, water pouring in generously over the cat's. Luffing, he edged nearer, handling his craft as though intending to ram the larger vessel, foot by foot shortening the little interval. When it was four feet, he would risk the jump, he crawled out on the overhang, crouching on his toes, one hand light upon the tiller, the other touching the deck. Ready, ready! Abruptly, the Alethea shut off the wind, and sail flattened, and the cat dropped back. In a second, the distance had doubled. In anguish, Kirkwood uttered an exceeding bitter cry. Already he was falling far off her counter. A shout reached him. He was dimly conscious of a dark object hurtling through the air. Into the cockpit, splashing, something dropped. A coil of rope. He fell forward upon it, into water eighteen inches deep, and for the first time he realized that, but for that line, he had gone to his drowning in another minute. The cat was sinking. As he scrambled to his feet, clutching the lifeline, a heavy wave washed over the waterlogged craft and left it all but submerged and a smart tug on the rope added point to the advice which, reaching his ears in a bellow like a bull's, penetrated the panic of his wits. Jump! Jump, you fool! In an instant of coherence he saw that the brigantine was luffing. Nonetheless, much of the line had already been paid out, and there was no reckoning when the end would be reached. Without time to make it fast, he hitched it twice round his waist and chest, once round an arm, 
and grasping it above his head to ease its constriction when the tug should come, leaping on the combing and overboard. A green roaring avalanche swept down upon him and the luckless catboat, overwhelming both simultaneously. The agony that was his during the next few minutes can by no means be exaggerated. With such crises, the human mind is not fitted adequately to cope. It retains no record of the supreme moment beyond a vague and incoherent impression of poignant, soul-racking suffering. Kirkwood underwent a prolonged interval of semi-sentience. His mind dominated and oppressed by a deathly fear of drowning and a deadening sense of suffocation with attendant tortures as of being broken on the wheel, limb rending from limb of compression of his ribs that threatened momentarily to crush in his chest, of a world a welter with dim swirling green half-lights alternating with flashes of blinding white, of thunderings in his ears like salvos from a thousand cannon, and his senses were blotted out in blackness. Then he was breathing once more, the keen, clean air stabbing his lungs, the while he swam unsupported in an ethereal void of brilliance. His mouth was full of something that burned, a liquid, hot, acrid, and stinging. He gulped, swallowed, slobbered, choked, coughed, attempted to sit up, was aware that he was the focal point of a ring of glaring, burning eyes, like eyes of ravening beasts, and fainted. His next conscious impression was of standing up, supported by friendly arms on either side, while somebody was asking him if he could walk a step or two. He lifted his head and let it fall in token of assent, mumbling a yes, and looked round him with eyes wherein the light of intelligence burned more clear with every second. By degrees he catalogued and comprehended his weirdly altered circumstances and surroundings. He was partly seated, partly held up, on the edge of the cabin skylight, an object of interest to some half-dozen men, seafaring fellows all, by their habit, clustered round between him and the windward rail. Of their number, one stood directly before him, dwarfing his companions as much by his air of command as by his uncommon height, tall, thin-faced, and sallow, with hollow, weather-worn cheeks, a mouth like a crooked gash from ear to ear, and eyes like dying coals, with which he looked the rescued up and down in one grim, semi-humorous, semi-speculative glance. In hands, both huge and red, he fondled tenderly a squat brandy flask, whose contents had apparently been employed as a first aid to the drowning. As Kirkwood's gaze encountered his, the man smiled sourly, jerking his head to one side with a singularly derisive air. "'Hi, matey!' he bustered. "'How goes it now? Feel it happier, eh?' "'Some, thank you. More like a drowned rat.' Kirkwood eyed him sheepishly. "'I suppose you're the man who threw me that line? I'll have to wait till my head clears up before I can thank you properly.' "'Don't mention it!' He of the lantern jaws stowed the bottle away with jealous care in one of his immense coat pockets, and seized Kirkwood's hand in a grasp that made the young man wince. "'You're safe enough now. My name's Stryker, Captain William Stryker. "'What's the row?' "'Looking for a friend?' he demanded suddenly, as Kirkwood's attention wandered. 
for the memory of the errand that had brought him into the hands of Captain William Stryker had come to the young man very suddenly, and his eager eyes were swiftly roving not along the decks, but the wide world besides, for sight or sign of his heart's desire. After luffing to pick him up, the brigantine had been again pulled off on the port tack. The fury of the gale seemed rather to have waxed than waned, and the Alethea was bending low under the relentless fury of its blasts, driving hard, with leeward channels awash. Under her port counter, a mile away, the crimson lightship wallowed in a riot of breaking combers. Sheerness lay abeam, five miles or more. Ahead, the northeast headland of the Isle of Chapri was bulking large and near. The catboat had vanished. More important still, no one aboard the brigantine resembled in the remotest degree either of the calendars, father or daughter, or even Mulready, the black avised. I sigh, are you looking for someone you know? Yes, your passengers. I presume they're below? Passengers? A hush fell upon the group during which Kirkwood sought Stryker's eye in pitiful pleading, and Stryker looked round him blankly. "'Where's Miss Calendar?' the young man demanded sharply. "'I must see her at once.' The keen and deep-set eyes of the skipper clouded as they returned to Kirkwood's perturbed countenance. "'What are you talking about?' he demanded brusquely. "'I must see Miss Calendar, or Calendar himself, or Mulready.' Kirkwood paused, and, getting no reply, grew restive under Stryker's inscrutable regard. "'That's why I came aboard,' he amended, blind to the absurdity of the statement, "'to see, uh, Calendar. "'Well, I'm damned.' Stryker managed to infuse into his tone a deal of suspicious contempt. "'Why?' insisted Kirkwood, nettled but still uncomprehending. "'Do you mean to tell me you came off from wherever in L you did come from, "'intended to board this wessel and find a party named Colindar?' "'Certainly I did. Why?' "'Well,' cried Mr. Stryker, rubbing his hands together with an air oppressively obsequious, "'I'm sorry to hinform you you've come to the wrong shop, sir. "'We don't stock no Calendars. "'We're in the hardware line, we are.' You might try next door, or, I dis say, you'll find what you want at the stationer's, round the corner. A giggle from his audience stimulated him. If, he continued acidly, I'd a guessed you was such a damn fool, blimey, if I would have let you drowned. Staggered, Kirkwood bore his sarcastic truculence without resentment. Calendar, he stammered, trying to explain, Calendar said— I can't help what Calendar said. Maybe he did make an engagement with you, and you've gone and went a forgot the diet. Maybe it's last year's Calendar you're thinking of. You, Johnny, to a lout of a boy in the group of seamen, you run and fetch this gentleman Whitaker's for nineteen six. Look sharp now. But, with an effort, Kirkwood mustered up a show of dignity. Am I to understand? he said as calmly as he could, that you deny knowing George B. Calendar and his daughter Dorothy, and I don't have to. Listen to me, young man. For the time, the fellow discarded his clumsy facetiousness. 
I'm William Stryker, Captain Stryker, master and arf owner of this wessel, and what I says here is law. We don't carry no passengers. Do you understand me? Aggressively. There ain't no pusson named Colindar aboard the Alethea, and never was, and never will be. What name did you say? Kirkwood inquired. This ship? The Alethea, registered from Liverpool, bound from London to Antwerp in cargo. Anything else? Kirkwood shook his head, turning to scan the seascape with a gloomy gaze. As he did so, and remarked how close upon the Sheppey headland the brigantine had drawn, the order was given to go about. For the moment he was left alone, wretchedly wet, shivering, wan, and shrunken visibly, with the knowledge that he had dared greatly for nothing. But for the necessity of keeping up before Stryker and his crew, the young man felt that he could gladly have broken down and wept for sheer vexation and disappointment. Smartly, the brigantine luffed and wore about, heeling deep as she spun away on the starboard tack. Kirkwood staggered round the skylight to the windward rail. From this position, looking forward, he could see that they were heading for the open sea. Foulness low over the port quarter, not before him, but a brawling waste of leaden green and dirty white. Far out, one of the side-wheel boats of the Queensborough-Antwerp line was heading directly into the wind and making heavy weather of it. Some little a while later, Stryker again approached him, perhaps swayed by an unaccustomed impulse of compassion, which, however, he artfully concealed. Blandly ironic, returning to his impersonation of the shopkeeper, "'Nothing else we can show you, sir?' he inquired. "'I presume you couldn't put me ashore.' Kirkwood replied ingenuously. In supreme disgust, the captain showed him his back. "'Here, you!' he called to one of the crew. "'Tyke this, Oye. Tyke him below and put him to bed. Give him a drink and dry his clothes. Maybe he'll be better when he wakes up. He don't talk sense now, that's sure. If you ask me, I sigh he's balmy, and no ope for him.' End of chapter 11 Recording by William Tomko